Hey Church in the Square, my name's Jason, one of the elders here at church. Always grateful to get to open up God's Word with you, so please let's open to Romans chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 11. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, first books of the New Testament. Uh, if you get to Acts, keep going, then you'll hit Romans. If you go too far, you'll hit 1st, 2nd Corinthians and go back to the left. Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. We are going to jump right in, read the passage, pray, and then ask that God would help us to understand him better through his word. Romans chapter 2, verse 6 through 11. Read this way. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the Jew first and also the Greek. And verse 11 says, for God shows no partiality. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, it is good to open up your word. Perhaps, Father, it has been a while since we've opened up your word to sit underneath your authority, your teaching, your providence, your care, Perhaps it was just earlier today. But regardless of how frequent or how recent, Father, we thank you that you are the same, that you speak, that you are gracious, that you are kind, that you are clear. And so, Father, I pray for my friends, my brothers and sisters. Father, would you speak to them? They don't need to hear from a human. They need to hear from their heavenly Father. They, they don't need just something that is pragmatic and memorable. They need transformation as I do from the inside out, Father. We need the power of your Holy Spirit. We are desperate. We are helpless without you. And so remind us of this today. I pray you'd convict myself and, and others perhaps who daily, regularly think we do not need you. Think we can make it without opening up your word. Think we can flourish and thrive without submitting to you on a regular so convict us, overwhelm us with your grace, lead us to worship and joy and thanksgiving today, Father. Though there may be challenges and confession along the way, we pray, Father, you renew us by transforming our minds and making us worshipers who offer our very lives as living sacrifices unto you. So God, would you do that in our church? Would you do that uh, individually and corporately, Father, through your word today? Help me, help me to simply speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we considered last week that a day is coming. If you remember at the end of verse 4 and 5 in that previous passage, and that what verse 5 specifically taught us about that day that was coming is that God's righteous judgment would be revealed. It would be disclosed. Something that was hidden would be made clear. And that in particular... Paul writes this first century collection of both Gentiles and Jews. In about 57 AD, he writes them in Rome that, that the judgment of God will be revealed. 
And then there is this transition as we come into verse 6. It, it's subtle, but, but it's there. Verse 6 says, He will render to each one according to his works. Paul, Paul explains that a day, that particular day, what that day will look like, this day of wrath that he speaks about in verses 4 and 5, that what we should know then is that when we come to verses 6 through 11, what Paul is going to be doing is explaining verse 5. He, he begins to do, the, do, do so in verse 6, that he will render God will to each according to his works. In other words, he'll do this on the day when his judgment is revealed. See, our current passage simply answers the question, what is God's righteous judgment? Or what will, what will this look like? What, what will we experience when God's righteous judgment is revealed? Paul begins to answer this question right away in verse 6. He begins to answer the question about what God's righteous judgment will look like. And, and he does so. He, he answers this question in sort of this ancient concert of the Psalms and Proverbs and Job. Psalm 62 verse 12 says, For you, that, that's God, will render to a man according to his work. Proverbs 24, 12, does not he, again, that's God, who keeps watch over your soul, know it, and will he not repay man according to his work? In Job 34, 11, for according to the work of a man, he will repay, God will, and according to his ways, he will make it befall him. It's not explicit in Romans, but Paul seems to be quoting one of these Old Testament writers, likely that passage from the psalm, Psalm 62, verse 12. And, he, and, and what he's doing in, in speaking in concert with these Old Testament writers is that he is communicating something fundamental and historically certain about God, that God judges our works. God judges our works. Not only so, but he judges our works righteously. This has been a theme throughout all of uh, Romans, but in particular in this, in this portion in uh, Romans chapter 2, that God doesn't just simply judge, he judges by way of his righteousness. He judges righteously when he judges our work. So, so Paul is speaking particularly to his Jewish readers about a day of wrath when a righteous judgment of God will be disclosed, it will be revealed, it will be made plain. And like what happened at the start of Romans chapter 2, Paul is making sure that his Jewish readers know he is speaking to them and he is speaking about them. You see, Jews are not freed, as they may have believed. Uh, Jews are not freed from sin and consequence merely because they are Jewish. Jews are not freed from judgment simply because they are Jewish. That's why in verse 9, he, he writes this. Look, move, move your eyes down to verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Not only so, but this happens three different times in our passage. In verse 6, 9, and 10, that Paul highlights the individuality, that means that a specific person, and the universality, that means everyone will be judged. That God's judgment is individual and it is universal. Everyone will be judged. You see, it may 
have even been, it may have been comforting to know for the Jews that salvation of the gospel were for the Jew first and also the Greek. But Paul is now telling uh, his readers that judgment is also first for the Jew and also the Greek. And this is the heart of the passage. It's an idea found both at the very beginning in verse 6 and also in verse 11. Verse 6 says, God will render according to works. And then in verse 11, that God shows no partiality. That's what it means that God judges righteously. He judges according or, or in light of, in response to, he judges the works of every human being, both Jew and Gentile, with no partiality. God's righteous judgment will be a judgment without a hint of favoritism. Jews needed to hear that, and, and church, I think we need to hear that too, that God will judge all humanity without any partiality, without any favoritism. And may I be so bold. We need this reminder, especially in an election year, when the demonization of competing political and national viewpoints and ideologies are at an all-time high. Let the church hear the word and the voice of God today. See, this is an important shift, yet continuation of the teaching of chapter 2. Remember, and look back at verse 1. Move your eyes back just a few verses, back to verse 1. It says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Paul is pulling his readers back from the temptation and impulse to judge others. And the primary reason that they and we should not judge is because God alone is our righteous judge. You are not judge. I am not judge. Therefore, there should be no judgmentalism about us. We should not be a judgy people because we trust that God sits on his throne, that God is the one who judges, that God is the one who sovereignly proclaims who is righteous, proclaims who is innocent, proclaims who is guilty. And so, in the previous passage, we are called to repentance in general, and specifically, we are invited to confess sins of judgmentalism and repent, returning to God, who alone is our judge. See, when we judge, we are not simply being mean-spirited. We're not simply looking down upon someone, but the scriptures teach us that when we are being judgmental, when, when we judge others, we are taking God's place. We are taking God's place. We are determining ourselves worthy of a position and a power of which God alone is fit. This whole idea of God's universal and individual judgment of works should strike us as a bit odd. And perhaps even as we first read it, perhaps you had some sort of visceral or immediate reaction to the words that you were hearing. After all, aren't we saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? Aren't we judged upon the merits of Christ, not upon our own merits, and, and, and on his works, not on, not on ours? And, and didn't Paul, just a few verses earlier, say this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God 
for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's be clear. Let's be crystal clear. Salvation is a gift to anyone who believes, and this salvation is revealed by grace through faith. This is the reality of salvation in Christ. So isn't it true then, we may, may suppose, we'd expect that Paul, uh, to write about judgment, would, would keep grace in mind. We'd expect him to say something like, God will render uh, to each according to the grace afforded in, or, or rather afforded to him or to her through Jesus Christ. That seems more biblically faithful, doesn't it? And yet, when we consider the fullness of Scripture's teaching on grace, we see over and over again that gracious work of Christ or the gracious work of Christ on our behalf always manifests in a life of righteous obedience. When, when, when the Lord has been gracious to us, the, the evidence of his graciousness is meant to be righteousness, that it would be revealed in us that we have been beneficiaries of grace because we would be walking in obedience and righteousness. See, God's expectation, please hear me, church, God's expectation and judgment of works only confuses us when we believe grace doesn't change us. Hear that. That God's expectation, his judgment, that the judgment of God upon our works only confuses us, is, confuses us if we don't believe that grace actually changes us. That, that grace merely then becomes this thing that we receive for our benefit, for our comfort, but not for our transformation, not for our healing, not for reconciliation, not for a reconstitution of righteous living. See, God's expectation of us and judgment upon our works determines, reveals that grace is meant to change us. Salvation by grace, in other words, always shows through righteous living. And this ought to be so in increasing measure the longer we follow Christ. The more we follow him, the more we realize that his grace is not simply sufficient for our forgiveness. It's also sufficient for our sanctification, for our transformation, for our healing, for our growth in Christ. See, James, perhaps most famously, weaves together both works and grace when he wrote this in James chapter 2, verse 14 through 17, and also verse 24. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. James, I think, gives us a helpful scenario of a person who, who sees a need. And in fact, it's a brother or sister uh, who has uh, a need or is without life's basic needs. To wish them well, in other words, to just say, you know, I'm thinking about you, I'm praying for you, hope it all works out. To simply wish them well is incomplete and reveals a kind of faith which is not salvific. 
To be sure, prayer is powerful. Prayer is what the church is meant to do. It's, it's meant to be our knee-jerk response whenever we hear, hear an, an injustice or suffering or pain or any kind of problem or sinful proclivity. We have to pray for one another. Absolutely. But prayer is not our only weapon against injustice and suffering and need. And too often, if we're just gonna be real, too often prayer is a spiritual cop-out from actually doing the hard and self-sacrificing work of loving each other well, isn't it? Instead of doing the hard work of seeking to understand, how can I actually really show up in love? How can I really serve my neighbor, my brother, or my sister? How can I actually give them food or, or give them clothes that they need? Whatever it may be, we simply say, I'll pray for you. As a, as a sort of spiritual cop-out of not actually engaging in the challenge of doing this life together. See, in this case, saving faith ought to manifest in James' scenario, not in, simply in well-wishing or in kind of prayer, I hope it all works out for you, but in actually giving a brother or sister the food and clothes that they needed. See, faith and works or grace and righteousness are meant to be together. Actually, if you think about it, faith and works are actually, are, are actually quite ridiculous without each other. This is what I mean. To receive grace without living righteously is a form of spiritual entitlement. Paul has gone to great lengths to disparage this way of living. So, so grace without righteous living is merely spiritual entitlement. I, I just receive things from God. I receive his grace, I receive his forgiveness, but I do not respond to that grace in righteous living, or I don't allow that grace to transform me. Instead, I transform the gifts of God into a, a kind of entitlement and what I'm owed and what I'm deserved, and I remain unchanged. See, the gifts of God are always meant to change us. Conversely, attempting to live righteously or to simply perform good works without grace is a kind of moralism that presumes a kind of self-informed righteousness that I am able to do this on my own. It's quite delusional. See, neither option is true nor, nor biblical righteousness. Faith and works, grace and righteousness are meant to be together. Teacher Courtney Doctor explains that the key to understanding the relationship between faith and works is to identify the timing of the works. You see, if we trust our works or righteous living as a means of salvation, we are doomed. We're trusting them to save us. If we're trusting our works to impress God, if we're trusting our works to heal relationships, if we're trusting our works to gain us access to heaven or to the age to come, we are, we are doomed. We can never do enough good and we can never do the right good to procure such an outcome. Works before salvation is futile. But works on the other side of salvation, on the other side of the transformative work of Christ, demonstrates an authentic life, an authentic life that serves as evidence of Christ's redeeming work in us. See, in James' words, saving faith is never by itself. Saving faith is never by itself. In this, we respond to God's kindness and grace with righteous living rather than trying to merit or earn grace through righteous living. 
So it is a response to God, righteous living is. It is not the way in which we try to get a response from God. Our righteous living is a response to God. It is not the way we try to get a response out of God. So what's all this have to do with Romans? Everything. Look again at verse 6. Let's read, let's read it one more time. He will render to each according to his, what's that word? Works. According to works. Notice first it says that God will render. The, the word in Greek language uh, here in the New Testament means to give payment in return for something. To give payment in return for something. So, so God will render or give payment, which he will lay out in verses 7 through 10. This payment, or, or rather payments, are in return for a particular something. We'll learn in just a minute that there are two types of payment, and that something is works. It's already been made clear here in verse 6. What we are paid for. And, and we are going to see that there are two types of works. Works that lead to life and works which lead to death. So two payments and two somethings, or two types of of works for which we receive particular kinds of payments. See, with God's righteousness then, and an impartial judgment in mind, this is what Paul has communicated to us in, in the previous context and here in verse six. So keeping these things in mind, remembering that Paul is speaking about a particular day of wrath that's coming at the second advent, the second coming of Christ. Let's consider these two types of payments and these two types, types of work that God renders to everyone individually. Paul lays out two ways of living and their respective and impartial eternal judgments that come from God. Look at Romans 2, verse 7 through 10. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor, immortality and immortality, he will give eternal life. Verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be, a tri there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. God makes two different kinds of payments for two different kinds of works. As we've already established, Paul is not parting from biblical theology of grace. Rather, he is demonstrating its conclusion. He is explaining by way of a warning the spiritual implications of two ways of living. And notice the common language of obedience that Paul uses to describe these two in verse 8. Look, look, look again at verse 8. It says, by those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Paul highlights a really important reality about human beings. Hear this. Everybody obeys somebody. Everybody obeys somebody. We either obey the truth, Paul says, or we obey unrighteousness. And the apostle has made this, or will make this even clearer in Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? See, we are made 
to obey. This is why we talk so much about obedience in, in this, our church family, and not just with our children, but, but as adults, as brothers and sisters, we talk about obedience because we are children of God who obey our Heavenly Father. We have one job in life. It's to obey God in His Word. All of us obey someone or something. And so the question is not, are, are you being obedient? But rather, what or whom are you being obedient to? Or who are you obeying? Everybody obeys somebody. Interestingly, Paul doesn't describe one of these ways of living and then another. He uses a very classic literary device called a chiasm. In doing so, he begins where he ends in, in terms of content. He starts with a life that obeys the truth, then he moves to the life that obeys unrighteousness, and then back to the life that obeys truth. A chiasm can do one of two things in this sort of literature. It, it can either highlight what is at the center of the chiasm, or what is on the outside, of the, or the boundaries of it, or the frame of it. And in this case, it actually does a little bit of both. It focuses our attention at the very center on obedience, but it also keeps our, our mind sharp on the framework of this particular passage that begins and ends with God's impartial judgment of individuals, of human beings, and of all of humanity. So we get obedience in the middle, we, we notice that, and then we get God's judgment on the outside. So, so this is what is beginning to, to happen here. This, this highly structured passage makes Paul's main point for the passage very, very clear. God's impartial judgment is based upon obedience. God's impartial judgment is based upon obedience, and everybody obeys somebody. And so his impartial judgment is based upon the one whom you obey. So let's think about these two uh, ways of living and their particular consequence that Paul um, discloses or makes clear in this passage. First, he speaks about the, the obeying the truth, that, that way of life, the way of obeying the truth. And what categorizes a life that obeys the truth? Well, it's all about what we seek. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, Romans 2. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. See, a life which obeys the truth is not first concerned with behavior per se, but qualities and values. Did, did, you, know, did you notice that? In patience, the one who obeys truth seeks after that which God alone possesses, glory, honor, and immortality. What's incredible is that one who seeks such things through obedience to the truth, they will actually receive them. Look at verse 10. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. So the one who seeks glory will render the payment from, from God and, and actually get to enjoy God's glory. And the one who seeks honor will, will render the payment of, of honoring God and, the, and of living a life that honors God. The one who seeks immortality will render the divine blessing of eternal peace and eternal life. See, this type, this first type, is, is the way of obeying the truth. The first type of payment then, so that's, that's the first 
time for the first way. And the first payment then is glory and honor and peace or eternal life. And in short, here's what Paul is saying about this particular kind of person and the payment that they receive. If you seek God obediently, you will find him. If you seek God obediently, you will find him. Secondly, there, there are those who obey the truth. And secondly, there are those who obey unrighteousness. That's verse 8 and 9. So what categorizes a life that obeys unrighteousness? Well, again, it's all about what we seek, what we pursue, what we long for, what we aim towards. Look at verse 8 and 9. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek. So the one who seeks glory will render the payment of God's glory. But the one who is self-seeking will ultimately render the payment of wrath and fury. See, a life which obeys unrighteousness is above all else concerned with self. The life that, that, is, that is about the truth is a, is a life that is concerned first and foremost and forever with God. And a life that obeys unrighteousness is a life that is concerned with self. So Paul says they are, they are self-seeking. They are self-seeking. And the pursuit, the real, rather the result of this pursuit is the wrath and fury. And really two ways of communicating the same thing, wrath and fury, it's, it's about God's righteous anger and, and his consequence. And so the divine, this divine anger leads to a day of wrath when and where tribulation and distress will come upon this particular person. And Paul's main point persists. This judgment is for every human being who seeks self. So the second type uh, is the way of obeying unrighteousness. And the second type of payment is is a way is, is wrath and fury and tribulation and distress. So in short, if you seek, seek self obediently, you'll get yourself. And that's it. You, you will get what you pursue is essentially what Paul is saying. And the logical pursuit or the logical result of pursuing God is life with God. And the life of pursuing self will render you an eternity with self and, and, and not God. And so there is this logic, there is this justice, there's this consistency and order in God's righteous judgment on the day of wrath. Are you tracking with me? See, a life that obeys truth seeks God and leads to life. A life that obeys unrighteousness seeks self and leads to death. So, what are you obeying? Or, or who are you obeying? Because how you obey is how you will be judged. How you obey is how you will be judged. The manner of your obedience reveals the manner of your judgment. See, it, it's at this particular point we've got to talk about religion. We've got to talk about our, our response. Because our religious impulse, when we hear that, we hear these two ways of living, right? Whether in the scriptures or in a message or in a conversation is, I'm going to pick the one that leads to God because that seems like the right answer. Seems like that's the one you're pushing me towards, pastor, so I'll, I'll take door number one, please. So we have this, this, this impulse to just start seeking God. So, so maybe in our, in our notes, we have this impetus, we're making up our minds, right? 
that I'm going to start seeking God. Perhaps we're even feeling guilty. I have been self-centered. I have been selfish. Here's a couple of ways. Uh, this is what my mom said. This is what my husband said. This is what my friend said. Yeah, I've been, I've been selfish and therefore I'm making up my mind right now. I'm going to start seeking God. That, that, that's good. But side note, selfishness is impossible to diagnose in isolation. So if you right now in your own mind are, are sort of deliberating and saying, am I being selfish or am I pursuing God? It, it's actually incomplete. You can't do that. We need community to see what we cannot see on our own. To be sure, we can identify selfish tendencies in us, but true selfishness is actually revealed in community. Perhaps a good question to ask your group, if you're really curious, or your spouse, or a close friend, is not, am I selfish? but really more what tendencies of selfishness do you see in my life? What do you see in my life that shows that maybe I'm centered on my own will, my own way, my own story, my own desires, my own pursuits, my own agenda, and to just be open with them? That's the, that doesn't sound fun, does it? And yet what gets revealed in that is what you're seeking what you're pursuing. Because I think a lot of times we can hear that, you know, idea of selfishness and go, I'm not being selfish. I'm, I'm, I'm not a selfish person. I'm going to seek God. But the problem is we have to deal with the selfishness in order to seek God. See, we can't just religiously presume we are ready to seek God until we buy the, the power of the Holy Spirit through the work of the cross in, in Christian family and community put to death the sins of selfishness. It is when we put to death the sins of selfishness that we are able to seek God first. And, and this, after all, is what Jesus told us to do in Matthew 6, verse 33, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So let's start seeking God. But let's just be real. We can't do that on our own. We can't just cease seeking um, or one kind of obedience and give ourselves to another. We are trapped. We are enslaved. We must put sin to death before we are free to seek God rightly, freed from selfishness. See, one way we must face our enslavement, our unrighteousness, and sin is by considering nationalism. This is something that holistically I think that we need to have a conversation about. This leads us sort of a necessary consideration in the life of our country, in the life of our church. See, remember, with obedience at the center of this chiastic structure and God's non-partiality as bookends, what Paul is doing, let's remember what Paul is doing with his first century audience. He is helping his Jewish readers especially understand that judgment will come for everyone on the basis of obedience and works. He, he wants them to see that judgment is coming for all of them based on obedience and works. Why? Because he especially wants Jews to understand that judgment will come upon them and they will not be acquitted of judgment based on their national heritage. They will not be freed from, they will not escape the wrath to come merely because of their ethnicity, as many of them would have supposed and been tempted to believe. See, in other words, Paul is stripping away nationalism through the lens and the power and the work of the gospel. He is saying that you can either obey Christ or you can obey your national 
identity. One leads to life, one leads to death. And because they were neither saved by their Jewishness, but rather by grace, nor will they be judged by their Jewishness, but rather by obedience, then that means they ought to not live by their Jewishness, but rather by the power and identity of Christ. Saved by grace, not their Jewishness. Judged by obedience, not by their Jewishness, not by their ethnicity and national heritage. Therefore, to live not by their Jewishness or ethnicity, but to live by the power and identity of Christ. I'd like to help us think about this. Because we may not be Jewish, but we are just as in need of hearing this teaching today in the United States of America. Can I get an amen? Please hear, hear this. Please hear me and God help me. We will not be judged based on our Americanness. We will not be judged based on our Americanness. Therefore, we must be so careful to avoid the temptation of obeying a nationalistic or American tendency within our hearts and not obeying Christ. There's this impulse, isn't there? An impulse in us to, to behave and to move and respond and think and act a particular kind of way that is not of Christ and yet is a merit, is a kind of glory and honor of, of self and self-identity that we relish in, that we confide in, that we trust, that is not a part of the gospel, but is a part of nationalism. In his teaching on uh, Romans, about 1957, the great preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his church in Westminster Chapel in London, was going through uh, Romans, and he, he was preaching about what may have been going through the minds of first century uh, Jewish readers, and he, he says this, and, and think about whether or not we ought to hear ourselves in his prophetic critique. See, their position, he said, as Jews, is quite untenable. They are governed by a prejudice, and they are not facing their own scriptures of which they boast so much. It seems Lloyd-Jones may be speaking to us prophetically as much as he was speaking to his own congregation in London in 1957. We too can develop an identity of specialness and of righteousness, which is based upon our national heritage and not upon Christ. And this is nationalism. We as an American church are just as susceptible to this temptation as our first century Jewish brothers and sisters. We can be just as guilty, we are just as tempted to brand ourselves, to identify ourselves, to look at our righteousness, our merit, our worth, our value, our specialness through the lens of us being American and not only completely and fully grounded in Christ. As historian Kristen Corbez de May has written in her book, Jesus and John Wayne, Here's how she explains not only what nationalism is, but its implications. Christian nationalism, belief that America is God's chosen nation and must be defended as such, serves as a powerful predictor of intolerance toward immigrants, racial minorities, and non-Christians. She goes on to explain that what materializes from this framework is a group who self-identifies as Christians, 
but have a hard time distinguishing their religious affiliations from their national allegiances. And regardless of which political party or ideology one may espouse, when we conflate our commitment to Christ and our commitment to country, we eventually will become obedient to unrighteousness. Why? Why, why will this happen? And where is this headed? Let's look at verse 11. Look at verse 11 in Romans chapter 2. For God shows no partiality. For God shows no partiality. So why does nationalism lead to obedience of unrighteousness? Because nationalism rejects the core doctrine of this passage that God shows no partiality. See, the idea of nationalism is that God will show partiality to us because we are American, which can be particularly true for those who are Christian white Americans, that we are central to his plan, that we supersede others within his will. We may never say that, but we live in a particular way that lives within this kind of demonic power and this demonic ideology. And you may even right now be saying, absolutely not, totally don't believe that. Let's just ask a question. Let's ask a question together that I need to ask of myself and that we as followers of Jesus need to, almost as sort of a process of considering whether or not God's spirit would reveal that maybe this is something within our hearts. What brings more emotions? What brings more emotions? When Jesus' name is defamed or when your political party or an idea from your political party or your viewpoint is defamed? What brings you more emotions? What makes you more angry? What boils your blood? What gets you so riled up when Jesus' name is tarnished? When his gospel is not proclaimed? When the kingdom is not advancing? When the poor are not loved and, and, and cared for? When the naked are not clothed? When the hungry are not fed? When sin persists? When the church is not living in the beautification of the gospel that she is meant to, does that frustrate you? Or when your political party is being spoken ill of, or when your candidate is not viewed the same way that you view them, what gets more emotion out of you, my brother, my sister? If you cannot say it is Jesus, you are falling prey to the sin of nationalism of seeing your worldview as an American or as a particular kind of political party within the American system as supreme, as central, and you are unable to pull those things apart. In fact, you would think, well, of course the Lord wants my particular viewpoint or our, our country to advance and flourish and thrive and prosper. Have you ever read a story about Israel? It seems that he allows those whom he has chosen to experience incredible suffering and pain. He does not protect always in the way that we would expect that he would protect. See, we, we, we begin to put things in God's mouth. We begin to suggest things about his character when we put our nationalism at the centerpiece of who we are, unable to distinguish our, our faith in Christ and our national heritage and identity. See, we are not closer to God because we are American. God does not care about us more than other nations. 
We are not a con- we we are a country teeming with contradiction and sins and vanities and unrighteousness and shame and self-delusion. We are not special. We are not uniquely selected. We have always been, as a country, more closely associated with the Pharisees of the New Testament than those whom Jesus describes as the least of these, those whom Jesus said found belonging in the kingdom of heaven. We must be so careful, church. Now you might say, well, is it a sin to be patriotic? Patriotism and nationalism is very different. Patriotism is being grateful. Nationalism is making something central. Patriotism is, is a posture of thankfulness for who you are and, who, who, and where God has divinely selected that you would live or your ethnic heritage, to being grateful and to have pride in that. Nationalism is making that the centerpiece of your identity and your worldview. As hard as this may be for some of us to hear, it's actually really good news. It's really good news that America is not the promised land. It's really good news that America's democracy is not the closest expression that we've ever seen to the kingdom of heaven. It's really good news that America is not the hope of the world. See, our nationalism merely reveals a collective obedience to unrighteousness, which in turn means that we obey and enjoy our American impulses and values more than we are sensitive to the leading of God's spirit who guides us in all wisdom and truth and love. You see, this is, this is what's happening beneath the surface. Our core allegiance leads to our obedience. And who we obey determines our judgment or the payment which God will render to us. See, everybody obeys somebody. And what God is saying to us today is that we must be careful that we do not supplant our God-given allegiance to the truth as, as followers of Jesus to an allegiance to our country or an obedience to Christ given away to an obedience to unrighteousness. What's our hope? Keeping in mind the broader context of Paul's address, I think we find some incredible help. See, in verses 1 through 5, the call to repentance is rejected by a hard and impenitent heart. That means that our obedience is actually not the core issue. The core issue is our hearts, which simply manifest in obeying unrighteousness. Therefore, the good news of Jesus is that that, that repentance is a gift. You remember this? That repentance is a grace granted to us by the mercy and love of God in the form of a new heart. Jesus gives you a new heart. Everybody obeys somebody. And thanks be to God, we can obey God because we have been given, we've been granted, we have been bestowed, we have been generously and graciously given a new heart which desires and is able to obey. Amen? That's still in focus here in verses 6 through 11. So we should not begin with the symptom, but with the core issue, our heart. So so we can't just say, I'm going to start seeking God. We we need to settle in our hearts and say, God, what is it in my heart that is selfish? What is this impulse? What is this longing? What is this fear that exists in my heart? change me that I might live differently. See, I got to be changed. I got to be different before I can live 
differently. You see, our spiritual allegiance leads to our obedience, which in turn begets a certain judgment. And the inception of our allegiance to God is a new heart, which is a gift of his grace. To put it another way, when we were self-seeking and did not seek God, and none of us did, God in Christ sought after us. How good is that news? See, we were all self-seeking. We were all slaves of, of unrighteousness. We were all obedient to unrighteousness. We were not seeking God. And the story of the gospel is that by his grace, by his mercy, by his love, for his own glory, for our joy, God in Christ came after us. It flows so beautifully. What the great 182-line poem, The Hound of Heaven, in which Francis Thomas portrays God as the great lover who compassionately chases down his people who have run away from him. God seeks us. This is what makes Christianity altogether different from every other worldview, every other religion, every other ideology, by every other nationalistic tendency and ethnic heritage and culture. This is what makes Jesus vastly different than America. Ours in Christ is a story of a heavenly father seeking his children to the point of death, the death of his only son. Every other story is a tired narrative of humanity seeking God to their death. But in Jesus, we have a story of the Son of God seeking us to his death and resurrection and ascension and glory. And so what Paul is getting at here is that we will be judged based on our works. Because those who have surrendered by grace to the cosmic pursuit of Christ will be those who live righteously and seek his glory. Those who are still chasing the good life for themselves and by themselves will be those seeking their own glory. See, everybody serves somebody and how you obey is how you will be judged. And for those who have been chased down and selected and who have been elected and secured and preserved and saved by Christ, are those who live in a manner where they are obedient to the truth, obedient to righteousness, because they have been sought after by Christ. See, on the day of wrath, it will be clear who that somebody has been. Church in the square, my sister, my brother, may it be Christ, the one who has sought after you. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to be a people who are not self-seeking, who are not nationalistic in our hearts, but Father, who by the power of the Holy Spirit through the, 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 the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, risen from the dead, ascended to the heavenly Father, may we be a people whose impulses of our hearts are your glory, your honor, and immortality, your eternal nature, so God, give us that mind of Christ. That when impulses of selfishness, impulses of nationalism pull at our hearts, may we confess our sin and know that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Father, may we be a people who on that day 
it is revealed that the work of Christ has produced works of righteousness. And would you receive all the glory, all the honor and eternal praise for it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.